Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So Lauren, life is slowly starting to get back to normal in some areas more than in others. And I think that we all know that life is probably permanently going to be changed in some regards after COVID-19. And I know some people were worried that the handshake was going to actually be one of those things that like permanently went away. I don't see that happening. I've still been shaking hands with some people. Uh, It is just sort of like this foundational part of culture that we shake hands when we meet people. But I will say that I have been loving the addition of elbow bumps and way more fist bumps. Because, you know, sometimes a handshake just feels way too formal for the situation. Like, you go out to dinner at a Mexican restaurant for your friend's birthday and you arrive and there's two other people that you don't know. Shaking hands just feels kind of awkward. But a fist bump or an elbow bump, it's perfect. So I'm electing that we 100% keep the handshake, but also maintain regular fist and elbow bumps. See, Virginia, I disagree. I worked at a retirement home. That was my, my job all through high school and into college for a little bit. And I uh, I waited tables. It was a real fancy retirement home in St. Augustine, Florida. And I came to love like the old lady where you like half shake your hand, but half like hold hands with the person as you're talking to them. Aww. And I just like that is such like a special way to connect with someone. And people always think it's really weird when I do it. So Um, you know, it's usually only me and old ladies, but (laughs) I want to actually go the other way. And like, yeah, I don't like shaking hands and not in like really informal situations, but you know, like I'm all about like, let's just like sit and like really talk and connect in this way. Um, because like an old lady, it would only be maybe like two or three minutes of her day, but she would just really look at me and be like, Oh, hi. Like, how are you doing? You do such a great job. And it just, that feeling of them looking at me still sits uh, with me all these years later. So that's so sweet. So you're talking about like the handshake that becomes kind of a handhold sometimes for like a minute. Okay. Yeah, you know, like the old lady handshake that comes in as like a half handshake. Yeah. And then they just kind of like you hold fingers and like, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I'm I'm a big fan of that. Um, and also yesterday I met up with a friend. We did a, uh, a socially distanced picnic. Um, you know, I hadn't seen her probably in almost two weeks. And, and we sat on the National Mall and we were leaving. And you know what? She looked at me and she's like, I miss you. You're you're my really good friend. And like we did like a quick hug. And it was just like, I don't know, as much as we need to be safe. And I'm not saying like go out in, in crowds and like hug everyone, but as we're opening up, we need to like, remember that like we need human contact and we need to be there for one another. And, uh, you know, I don't, it was just something nice. And, and I don't think that was the wrong thing to do in that moment. Yeah, no, Lauren, I, I agree. I think that that physical touch is super, super important for, for everyone, but especially, um, if you're, if you're into the five different love languages and if, if touch is your love language, that's a big deal to have, have that contact. Um, so I'm glad that you got to hug a friend yesterday (laughs) after months, (laughs) but Lauren, I, I do have to share one other, just very important update, life update. So you all may remember that I planted tomatoes about six weeks ago, and I was very concerned that I had killed the plant, but I am happy to report that it has not died and that I now have over a dozen tomato sprouts, still no tomatoes. But we're getting there. So, Lauren, I'm wondering how uh, how your 
COVID project of redecorating your room is going and if you have successfully been able to channel your inner Joanna Gaines. You know, I will never be a good decorator. <laughs> uh, my mom sees my walls and she's like, the the paintings are all like not right the way that they're supposed to be, you know, like, but I'm so happy with my new room and I just have like such a great little workspace. Um, I get so much more natural light. Um, and especially, you know, I'm in my room now, <laughs> sad as it is, 22 hours a day. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's it's been very fruitful. I've also a little bit of green thumb. A friend gave me a fern um, that we've nice. nicknamed uh, Fernie Sanders. Um, and that's because he relies on handouts to live. Um, but I had a fake little pair of glasses that I put on him and it has like the crazy fern. Um, so yeah, that, that's my thumb project. I would love for you to tweet out a photo of that fern with the glasses on with the caption Fernie Sanders. I don't know that that's a good idea. You might not want to actually do that, but <laughs> I would personally love to see that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think I will, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Lauren, what do we have queued up for today's show? On today's show, we talk with Kate Anderson, attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, about the recent Supreme Court case that ruled in favor of LGBTQ rights and against the Harris Funeral Home. Plus, Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Mental Health and Substance Use at HHS, joins us to discuss how the extended COVID-19 quarantine is a danger to the emotional and mental health of the American people. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are joined by Kate Anderson, attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So Kate, to begin, can you let us know what Alliance Defending Freedom or ADF is and what do you guys do? Alliance Defending Freedom is a nonprofit legal organization, um, and we uh, take cases across the country promoting religious freedom and freedom of speech for everyone. Uh, we take all of our cases pro bono, so we're supported by uh, ministry friends that help us do the work that we do with no cost to our clients, which is a huge blessing. So today we're focusing our discussion uh, on a pretty big Supreme Court ruling that just happened this week. For our listeners who aren't familiar, what events led up to the Harris funeral home case? Well, the question before the court was the meaning of the term sex in federal employment law, whether sex means biology as it always has, or whether it will be changed to include the concepts of gender identity and sexual orientation. We represented Harris Funeral Homes, a uh, fifth generation family business in the Detroit area who had a male funeral director who had worked for them for about six years, always abiding by their sex-specific dress code. Uh, this employee, at, uh, after about six years, 
contacted the owner and indicated that the employee planned to present and dress as a woman while working with grieving families. Uh, the owner had to think about this, considered how this would impact this particular employee. Uh, the other employees there, many of whom were elderly women, um, there was only one restroom for women at the facility, um, and how this would impact his clients. Uh, he concluded that he could not go along with the plan needed the sex-specific dress code to be in place. It was in accord with both industry standard and federal law. Uh, the ACLU ended up making a test case out of this to push um, this kind of a change in the law, which they were successful this week. Um, and that's going to have some very concerning consequences for our country and particularly for women. And how, like you say, that that decision was made on Monday how is that decision going to change kind of the way that the law is interpreted and, and so on and so forth? What the court did was change the term sex in federal law to, well, in federal employment law, to mean and include sexual orientation and gender identity. We're talking about a law that has always operated primarily to protect equal opportunities for women um, where biology matters. And so this is a drastic change in the law that calls into question whether women are going to be protected as they have been. Um, if men can be women under the law, then those protections really go away. And you see women both on the um, far left of the political spectrum and on the far right of the political spectrum who are deeply concerned with this. So this ruling in some ways limited, but in other ways bigger and sets a dangerous precedent. Can you kind of weigh those two outcomes? Absolutely. So this was about the federal employment law, uh, Title VII, and the court did attempt to cabin it to that. However, the same logic can apply elsewhere, and we have every expectation that activists who want to see this change in the law, this splitting from the idea that biology does determine sex, um, the activists that want to see that happen will use this logic in other cases. That's how you see things like we've seen in Connecticut with women's track and field. Uh, there are two biological boys who identify as female over the last two years took 15 state track and field championship records that used to be held by nine different girls. And with that, all of the um, athletic and scholarship opportunities that go with that. Um, when the girls' parents contacted officials to question what was going on, those officials told them, well, girls have a right to compete, but they don't have a right to win. And that's the kind of response that we're seeing where this kind of change has happened already in the law, and we expect it to grow. So let's talk about that a little bit more, because one of the topics that we're super, super passionate about at Problematic Women and that we've done a lot of reporting on is just that protecting women and sports and their opportunities to to win championships and to earn college scholarships and, you know, to even compete at the Olympics. So you're saying that this rule uh, endangers that even more so than what we've already seen in, in you raise the situation in Connecticut. Yes, it certainly endangers that rule. It's a different statute, so good arguments can be made that sex needs to be interpreted differently under Title IX, which is what protects women's sports opportunities and scholarship opportunities. But the same logic can be applied. If sex is no longer linked to biology in federal employment law, um, certainly activists are going to try to tear that apart in other laws. And even on the employment level, it's concerning. Um, 
as a woman, as a mother, as someone who's grown up in a profession that has largely catered to men, um, it's deeply concerning to see the advances that women have been able to make because of sex discrimination law that has protected equal opportunities in employment and elsewhere, um, watch that be torn down by this type of a ruling. Wow. Oh, that's really frightening. And what about, you know, locker rooms at schools and, and bathrooms? Will the court's decision mean that, let's say, an eighth grade boy who believes that he's a woman or even just says that he believes he's a woman can now use the girl's locker room or the bathroom? And even if there are girls that say, I'm uncomfortable with this, or even if the principal of the school is uncomfortable with it, that they won't actually uh, have any real course of action to take in order to keep that biological male from using a female restroom or locker room. That's very much the concern here uh, because we have seen the logic from this case already be applied at local law levels where this kind of a change has already happened. And that's where you saw cases in the last few years where girls were saying, I'm uncomfortable with a biologically male student in my locker room, and yet I'm having to face that and the school is backing the student's presence there. Um, I think that will grow. I also represented um, the Downtown Hope Center in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, and they run a women's shelter that focuses on serving women who have experienced and survived horrible abuse. These are women who have been trafficked, raped, subject to domestic violence, um, and they need a safe place to sleep in Alaska where they're not going to be confronted with a biological male in a private space. Um, And the city of Anchorage used a law that had already been changed to read gender identity and sexual orientation into the meaning of sex. Um, They used that law to try to force the Hope Center to allow a biological male to come in and sleep just mere feet from these women. Um, And again, I talked to these women. These are women who have experienced extreme trauma and are triggered again by the mere presence of a biological male, no matter what he's doing, um, in a place where they're going to sleep. Um, Fortunately, we were able to intervene in that case and stop that from happening. But that's continuing to go on around the country in similar circumstances. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up the Hope Center because I actually wanted to talk about that. And and I think they really... um some ways got demonized because, you know, they, they just wanted this transgender person to sleep on the streets, but that wasn't the case at all. They, they still wanted to help this people and the Hope Center, um, you know, even helps men. Is that correct? Absolutely. The Hope Center runs a soup kitchen that serves about 500 meals a day. They also provide shower facilities, uh, laundry services and clothing and other goods for people who are faced with homelessness, both men and women. So during the day, they serve both men and women. They actually have served and continue to serve the particular individual who was at issue in this case. Um, But at night, they have created a women's only space because there was a deep need for that in Anchorage. All of the other shelters allow biological men in our mixed shelters. Um, And so they needed a space where women who are dealing with this type of trauma from trafficking and other abuse can go and feel safe and begin to um, truly recover in their lives. And it's amazing to see the good work that the Hope Center has been able to do and the success stories that they see in women's lives. Let's say, Kate, that I run a Christian school and I I have a a teacher at that school that, you know, one day decides that they're transgender. 
But, you know, what's so important about going to a Christian school is that they're upholding the beliefs of what's in the Bible. Does this ruling now mean that, you know, I, I couldn't fire or take action against that teacher who is going against exactly what the school stands for? This ruling is about Title VII, which actually has a religious exemption in it. And the court decision tried to provide for that kind of a situation, I believe, by um, highlighting that there's a religious exemption in place, that free exercise under the First Amendment still applies, that RIFRA, the federal law that protects um, religious people to live according to their beliefs, that that still applies. Um, however, there's definitely open questions about how those will be used in practice. And I fully anticipate that activists will try to use this ruling uh, to force schools, like you described, to employ people that are not aligned with their mission. So we've, we've talked about how this rule can really strongly affect women, how it might affect religious organizations. Who else is specifically affected in America by, by the court's decision? Certainly the direct implication is for employers uh, like our client, uh, which is concerning. There's an unfairness when you change the law. And I think there's a question as to whether um, things that have already happened, people who have already relied on the law, if this will impact them immediately. Um, certainly to everywhere we have seen uh, these kinds of changes in the law to add sexual orientation and gender identity. We've seen those laws weaponized to try to prevent people of faith from living according to their beliefs. We don't see these laws actually acting as they are um, promoted to act to stop any kind of discrimination. Instead, what we see is them weaponized. And that's where you get cases uh, like Chief Cochran in Atlanta, who um, was a fire chief, um, highly decorated, um, had received accolades from President Obama, but because he, on his own time, wrote a men's Bible study book that talked about his beliefs in marriage, um, he was fired from his position. Uh, you also saw, saw and are seeing Baron L. Stutzman's case. She's the florist in Washington State uh, who served a same-sex couple for 10 years, uh, providing custom floral arrangements for them for many occasions. But when they asked her to do her wedding, she referred them to someone else. And the state of Washington has come after her and is trying to take away her livelihood, her business, basically everything she has because of this decision. Um, so that's of deep concern. And it shows with those cases that this is, um, these are people of good faith who respect everybody um, definitely people in the LGBT community, but these laws are being used to, in a weaponizing way to try to force them to violate their beliefs. And that's something that we really shouldn't have in this country. So I think, honestly, even more than the outcome of this case, people have been talking about Gorsuch. Why is what Gorsuch decided and the stance he took so surprising? The courts interpret the laws in a way that looks to the original public meaning of that law. So how the courts have always dealt with laws like this is to look at what would sex mean at the time this law was passed in 1964. And no one at that time would have thought that sex meant gender identity or sexual orientation. Yet that's what uh, the majority opinion held here, that those laws can be added into that, that the statute can be updated um, in a way that the courts really haven't done, especially judges that have always held more of an originalist approach, um, looking at the text of the law. Um, so that's a deep concern that you see um, even textualist judges 
revising a statute after the fact to add things that were not in place at the time that the statute was passed. And the reason why we interpret statutes that way is because it builds in the consistency in the law and allows people to rely on what the law says when they're making business decisions, which is what our client did. And now to have the law changed underneath him um, is a real problem. So what are the next steps? I mean, are are there courses of action that have, that can be taken in order to, you know, kind of protect individuals in the future? Is it a waiting game until another similar case rises to the Supreme Court and we hope for a better outcome? What what does the future hold and what are the possibilities? I think there's a lot of open questions there, but ADF is going to continue to work hard in the cases that we have and cases that we will bring to protect equal opportunities for women and to protect people of faith in their ability to live and work according to their beliefs. We need to see a greater respect and education in our country uh, for people of faith that um, that people who do not agree with us on issues of marriage, issues on sexuality, um, issues of identity can understand that um, there are differences of opinion there and that the differences of opinion are valuable and need to be respected. Um, and no one should be punished for simply following what they believe to be true about identity um, or about marriage. So I think there's work to be done there uh, in terms of the culture as well as in these court cases. But we will be working hard in Connecticut and other places to make sure that women and girls are able to continue to have the equal opportunities that they have um, under the previous versions of Title VII. So what future cases should people have their eye on? I think Connecticut is going to be an important one um, that is continuing on in the courts and asks the question about how this issue of sexuality and biology is going to play out in the women's sports context. Um, And there are other cases like that around the country um, dealing with schools and such. But I think the Connecticut case is really on the forefront right now. Kate, thank you so much for the work that you do every day at Alliance Defending Freedom. We're just really thankful um, for you all and, and how you're promoting freedom for us every day. So we really appreciate your time today and just breaking down this kind of complex issue. Well, thank you. And thank you for covering this issue. It is an important one. YouTube is definitely one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on all the issues that you care about the most. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Psychiatrist, and Epidemiologist, as we discuss how quarantined has and may still affect Americans' mental and emotional health. I am joined by Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Mental Health and Substance Use at the Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. McCants-Katz, thank you so much for being here today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You are an epidemiologist, but you're also a psychiatrist, which gives you a very holistic perspective on all the risks of COVID-19, from infection uh, to what 
uh, you know, social distancing and, you know, those quarantine measures mean for mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in both the field of epidemiology and psychiatry and how your education in both of these fields affects your views of how America should respond to COVID-19? Sure. Well, I started out my graduate career at Yale University. I attended the Yale School of Public Health where I got a PhD in infectious disease epidemiology. Part of the training that I received at Yale was didactics in epidemiology and the study of viral infections. And so uh, I do have a background in molecular virology. I have a background in epidemiology as a science and some of the statistical methods to address epidemiological questions. I wanted a career in clinical research, and for many, many years, I have been a clinical researcher prior to coming into federal service, but I decided to go to medical school because I wanted to do research on human pathological conditions and having a a medical doctor degree would be helpful with that. So when I went to medical school, I thought I would end up going into infectious diseases, but I became quite interested in psychiatry and in the care and treatment of mental illness and substance use disorders. And so I pursued a career in psychiatry, and for many years I worked at the intersection of HIV disease and addiction medicine, specifically opioid addiction and injection drug use. So I spent many years looking at medications development for opioid use disorders. I also spent uh, many years studying medications that are, were used to treat HIV disease, as well as uh, opioid therapies used to treat opioid use disorder, helping to determine what the best ways were to consider the clinical needs of patients so that they would have the best outcomes in being treated for HIV and opioid use disorder if those conditions co-occurred, which is not, unfortunately, not an uncommon situation. So um, at, uh, at various times, uh, because of the kind of work I was doing, I uh, provided some consultation in in state government and ultimately ended up in the position I'm in now in federal government. The issue with coronavirus, of course, is one that has never been seen before. It's a new virus. It's a virus that, uh, because it's new, uh, we really don't know. It's epidemiology. Uh, We don't know Uh, a lot of information that uh, is critical to care and treatment of individuals who may become infected. And we don't know the spectrum of what those infections look like, uh, nor do we have complete data on transmissibility of the virus. Uh, What we did know back in February and March was that we had a viral illness that was quite severe and making many people so sick that they were dying from this illness, and and while that is leveling off now, continues to the present time. With that kind of increase in the numbers of people 
with infections and becoming so ill they needed hospitalization. Uh, and in a time when we had to very quickly learn how to care for people, it was necessary to take the actions that were taken uh, at the level of, of the federal government from President Trump and within the state governments. That helped to level off the spread of the virus. And during that time, we've been able to learn a lot about medical care for people. We've been able to get testing uh, much more widely available, and that continues to be an issue that's worked on every single day at the Department of Health and Human Services. We now um, have a system that's being rapidly put in place to do contact tracing. We, these are, I mentioned these things because these are really very standard epidemiological approaches to understanding uh, illnesses and, and particularly infectious diseases that, um, that are now up and running in this country. And that puts us in a different place in terms of uh, how we look at things going forward. The other side of that coin, though, is that for millions of Americans, um, when we say stay at home, home is safer, home is not safer for millions of Americans. There are millions of Americans who suffer domestic violence. There are millions of children who suffer child abuse and neglect. And when our schools are closed, and children are at home with their caretakers 24-7, and their caretakers are being asked to homeschool, things they have never been asked to do. This puts vulnerable children at great risk. We don't have our usual reporters available, our teachers, our school staff, our, our doctors, uh, that, that would be mandated reporters for these kinds of situations. They, they simply aren't seeing those children. Um, for many uh, people, women, and, and uh, in, uh, in some cases, men as well, they are victims of domestic violence. And because of stay-at-home orders, they can't escape. They can't escape the abuser. These are very serious issues. And there's a literature. There's a literature on what the effects of stay-at-home kind of lockdown or quarantine, whatever you'd like to call it, what the effects are on people. And what those effects are is that in as little as nine days, people can develop mental health problems, anxiety, depression, anger. Anger is one that is mentioned quite frequently. Um, numbing. People experience this as trauma. Some people will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And these can be long-lasting conditions. What we don't know, what we don't know is what is the effect of having stay-at-home orders or, or situations where we are prohibiting people from going about their daily activities, which includes, for millions of Americans, job loss and income loss, what, what are the effects of doing this for two to three months, in some places still with no end in sight? The literature actually doesn't show lockdowns that have ever lasted this long. And so we're quite concerned about that, particularly at the agency I lead, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. We are very concerned about the mental health effects on people who are subjected to these very severe policies 
and who have lost the structure of their lives, the social supports and contacts that keep them going. We are very concerned about people who have existing mental and substance use disorders who cannot get care because care across the country to a great extent has been canceled, at least the in-person piece of it. Um, our agency has taken major steps to put, to put telehealth services, telemedicine in place for those needing help with mental and substance use disorders. This is not something that um, is familiar to uh, much of our practitioners in behavioral health. And the reason for that is because, as the term implies, behavioral health, we do our work by interacting with people. We want to see our patients. We want to interact with them. Usually there are symptoms or behaviors or problem types of responses that people have that we address through individual settings, through group therapies, through therapeutic milieus, that for millions of Americans, these are ongoing needs. They, yeah. And they are everyday needs, and they aren't getting that care. So we are very concerned about that. We're concerned about the link between unemployment and suicide. That's been documented in the literature as well. We already know that suicide is one of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States before we ever saw coronavirus. Now we're very concerned that there will be an increase in suicide deaths because of the additional stressors that have been placed on our people for months on end. And for millions of Americans, that lack of assurance that their job will be there for them when they come back, or that they'll be able to go back to a full-time job. One of the things I'm hearing from colleagues across the country in my own field is that people's hours are being cut, they're being laid off, they're being furloughed, they're being asked to use their vacation time to cover reduced salaries that their employer gives them because of the lack of service provision. Uh, that's going on in the country right now. While telemedicine is critically important, it can be life-saving. Uh, it's, 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 it's a way of making an acute intervention. It's not going to be ever the full answer. People need that therapeutic interaction that occurs between others that share similar issues and their clinicians that have the experience of years and training and background to help people to address these kinds of conditions. So we're quite concerned about the mental health and substance use uh, disorder fallout from COVID-19. And that's before um, thinking about the fact that we have 58 million Americans prior to this virus, 58 million with mental and substance use disorders, many with what we call co-occurring disorders, mental disorders and substance use disorder in the same person. We know that people who have substance problems usually have problems with more than one substance. We know, um, we know that people uh, with substance use disorders, only about 10% of them get treatment. That was before coronavirus. We know that people with mental illness, only about 55% of them get treatment. That's before coronavirus. We know that 34% of people with serious mental illness, that's mental illness that is of a severity that people cannot carry out the normal, routine, daily life functions 
that the rest of us do because of impairments by their mental illness. 34% of them get no treatment at all. That's before coronavirus. We know that since coronavirus has started, appointments and visits have been stopped, that therapeutic um, interventions such as intensive outpatient services, partial hospital programs have been stopped. We know that people are at home bored and stressed and that alcohol sales have skyrocketed in this country. We are hearing from the, the, the lay press that law enforcement is very reluctant in some states to administer naloxone in an opioid overdose. If you don't administer naloxone to a person who is overdosed on opioids, they will die. And there's no need for that. There are safe ways to administer naloxone. We're trying to work on that right now. But I mention all of these things because what, what it says is that before coronavirus, we had huge gaps in care and huge needs on the part of Americans for care and treatment of mental health issues and substance problems, which are only being exacerbated by COVID-19. Wow. Yeah. Weighty. Very, very weighty. Let's talk for just a second about what actually happens in the human brain. If if someone goes, uh, you know, weeks or months without meaningful social interaction, whether maybe they've already been struggling with anxiety or depression, or maybe they, they weren't at all before, but now they're in this place of isolation, are there actually like chemical changes that begin to take place in the brain? There are chemical changes that take place in the brain, and these um, chemical changes have been associated with various types of mental illnesses, such as anxiety disorders, such as depressive disorders, uh, such as post-traumatic stress disorders. Um, your, your brain is involved in stress responses. And stress responses are mediated by a variety of different types of chemicals in the brain that also travel through the body. Um, And when a person experiences stressors that they cannot address, situations of isolation uh, and and, uh, anxiety that they cannot change, then those chemicals that... Um, stay in balance, which is how all of us go about our daily activities, and we are able to manage the normal the normal requirements of our lives because because our chemical structures in our brain are in balance. When that changes, that places a person at risk for developing mental disorders. And the thing is that when these imbalances occur, it will take time to rebalance the, the, um, the stress reactions, if you will. So when that happens, uh, a person uh, may need medication treatment. They may need um, uh, psychotherapeutic interventions, a combination of those kinds of, of interventions, those resources are how we address these kinds of of mental illnesses. But yes, exactly, and this is why why, uh, I have said that the the isolation of um, of the uh, stay-at-home orders 
are ones that in a relatively short period of time, and again, documented in the literature, uh, in a relatively short amount of time will be manifest as symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of depression, angry outbursts, and behaviors that may go along with those kinds of feelings. Um, what lies below that are changes that are occurring in the brain and the rest of the body. Um, now, not everybody experiences that. It's important to really point out that most of us uh, are able to cope with e even very severe stressors and, and the resilience of people. I think I, I want to make sure people understand that the majority of people will be able to withstand these stresses. But the people I'm talking about are people who, who just aren't able to. Some of us are more vulnerable than others to mental disorders and substance use disorders. These are genetically mediated illnesses. And so for that minority of people, which is a sizable number in the millions, but it's still, it's still relative to our population, a small number of people, those folks are going to need help. Yeah. And the thing is we need to get to them before there is a terrible outcome, such as a suicide, such as some kind of behavior that harms others, um, harms themselves, um, makes it impossible for them to attend to their physical health needs. There are any variety of different ways that these symptoms can make themselves known. You spoke with the president and a number of other leaders at the White House in May. What are the recommendations that you are offering to national and state leaders right now as it relates to reopening the economy and kind of trying to get life back to some resemblance of normal? So what I have said is that we have to think about more than viral infection. We have to think about whole health. We have to think about the needs of a person in their totality. We can't just think about the possibility of a viral infection. What I have said is that if we fail to do that, we will lose many more lives. Uh, we, we have uh, so many thousands of deaths, over 116,000 deaths related to suicide and drug overdoses. If you add alcohol into that, um, some estimates uh, approach 180,000 people a year dying of these very preventable conditions. In addition with COVID, we've got a situation where people's medical problems are not being addressed. So people aren't getting cancer screenings. They're not able to see their doctors for existing medical conditions like hypertension, like heart disease, like pulmonary disease, um, rheumatoid arthritis. It just There are many serious medical conditions that we must continue to address. And there is no reason not to do that. If we fail to do that, we will have many more deaths than we would see from COVID virus. Yeah. So... What I've said is we have to think about whole health and we have to think about what we've learned. And we have learned a lot about this virus. It's amazing how much we've learned in a period of three months. Uh, we have learned 
how to better manage people who do get so ill with the virus that they have to be hospitalized. We now have an FDA-approved treatment for very ill uh, people who have coronavirus infection. We now have increased testing for coronavirus greatly. Millions of tests have now been completed, and we are setting up a system in this country that will continue to test regularly for high-risk groups. We have now put in place uh, contact tracing, and we will be following up people to determine who else might have contracted coronavirus when we identify a case. We now know who the most vulnerable populations are, our elderly, those that are in nursing homes, those that have um, significant conditions that affect their overall health, and we need to protect them. But in doing that, we also need to pay attention to the needs of the general public. And the general public needs to go back to regular life, but they need to understand that it's safe to do that. And so I've also urged that rather than focusing on deaths that occur from coronavirus, which CDC has now said are much less, and overall in terms of the total number of cases are going to be much less than 1%, we look at the number of people who have had the virus and recover fully, and that number is quite high. And it will be even higher as we do more testing and learn about the great number of people who have had the virus who have had either very mild symptoms or no symptoms. It's very important not to spend so much time talking about a virus and emphasizing the negative aspects of illness with that virus that people become paralyzed and mm -hmm. can't go about their lives. And I think that our media has done a great job with that. And that's not something that I feel good about saying. It's time to start talking about the progress we've made. It's time to start talking about the fact that almost everyone recovers from this virus, and we know who the vulnerable people are and we can protect them. And if we keep in place good hygiene practices, social distancing, mask wearing as possible for people to do, then we can get back to normal life, and people should feel confident about that. We should not shut down again because we know how to deal with this problem. We should send our children to school. They need to be around other children. They need social interaction, and they need the opportunity to learn, and they need to be with teachers and others who can tell how their health and mental health is and let us know if those children need help. So it's really quite important that we stop talking about COVID as though it's a death sentence if people get the virus. It is not. And we go back to normal life because we know how to deal with this as a country. Wow, thank you so much. That's so insightful. And I think your, your holistic approach is incredibly helpful for perspective. Um, I want to take just a second and ask you, for those who might be listening and who are thinking, 
you know what, I think I am really struggling with depression in this season with anxiety. Uh, and maybe they're concerned about a loved one and a loved one's mental health. Do you have any practical tips for things that, that they can do to get their their own brain and mind or a loved one's back to a healthier and better state so that they can keep living life? Yes, it's it's really very important that as much as possible, people stay in contact with their loved ones, um, with their social connections. They can do that by telephone, by social media. It's important for people really to get outdoors, to get some exercise. That can be remarkably soothing and helpful. Those are, and, and to the greatest extent possible, keep a daily routine. It is so difficult for people when they lose their daily structure, as in stay-at-home orders, where you know you, you, your daily activity, you, you get up in the morning, you, you take a shower, you get dressed, you go to work, you, you, um, you come home, you make dinner, you take care of your family, your, your, your pets, and uh, have your evening activities. When that's taken away, that is so disorienting for people. Uh, it, it, it really takes a toll. Uh, even people who are able to telework, it takes a toll on them as well. And for people who are completely out of work, it is extremely stressful and, and uh, very difficult to cope with. So take care of yourself. And if you are feeling extremely sad, if your appetite goes off, if you can't sleep, if you're experiencing uh, very severe anxiety, it's really important that you seek help, and there are ways to do that. We have helplines at SAMHSA. We have the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. We have a Disaster Distress Helpline, and we have a national helpline that helps people to find treatment. They can talk with a, with a person that will help them to find a treatment uh, outlet, a treatment resource near them. You can also find SAMHSA resources online at findtreatment.gov. It's F-I-N-D-T-R-E-A-T-M-E-N-T, findtreatment.gov, that will help in finding help for substance problems. All you have to do is put in your city, your state, your zip code, and you can find resources in your area. And we also have a way of finding mental health services. Uh, it's called findtreatment.samhsa, S-A-M-H-S-A, dot gov. And again, that is a way to find resources for mental health issues. It's important that people take an inventory of how they're feeling. And if they're having trouble coping, seek help. Yeah. Seek support from those that care about you. And if that isn't enough, then seek professional help. We'll be sure to link some of those resources in the show notes for today. Dr. McCants-Katz, thank you so much for your insight. It has been incredibly helpful and profound. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.
Now, it is that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And this week, it's Problematic Women of the Week. The crown goes to... America's police women. <laughs> About 12% of America's police are female, and we want to take a moment to celebrate them. The killing of George Floyd revealed a hard reality. Racism exists in America, and even among the police, and it's critical that the issues within America's police stations be addressed, like we talked about last week with Heritage's Rachel Gresler. But we also need to be very careful not to villainize all officers because of the minority of bad cops. The majority of America's police officers risk their lives for our safety and protection. And the majority of our police officers truly want to do their jobs well and uphold the law while doing it. So today we're choosing to celebrate the female officers who are continuing to serve their communities with honor. I love it. I love that women in every career field always step up and do a great job. And I think, you know, as we're looking at how police need to reform and, and, you know, there, there are a lot of great cops, but what you can always be better. And I think having women in these situations, uh, while, you know, maybe our bodies aren't as tough as men, you know, our empathy, I think it was really a great tool for cops to have. So, you know, the women who choose to serve in a role as cops, I just, I really admire you. And, and I'm so glad that we're crowning them the problematic woman of the week. I agree. Yeah, it's such a worthy profession um, and incredibly brave of women to be part of that that 12% uh, and, and enter a field that we traditionally think of as kind of a man's work field, but um, that women really do thrive at. So congratulations to all of our, our female cops. All right, now it is time for the Twitter question of the week. So last week, we asked you all uh, to tweet at us if you had ever felt like you had to censor your beliefs or convictions because you knew that they would not be received kindly. And I actually posted a poll on my Twitter, Virginia underscore Allen five, and 80% of you all said yes, that at some point you had felt like you had to censor your views because you were worried about the reactions of others. Really interesting, kind of sad to see that majority, but also at the same time, I'm not surprised. I'm definitely also in that camp where sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe shouldn't say that. So definitely keep giving us your feedback on that topic. We want to hear your experiences. This week's Twitter question is, what is a book you are reading right now or have read recently that's deeply impacting you? It's summertime and we could all use some great reading material. One of the books um, that I have recently been reading is The Third Option by Pastor Miles McPherson. We actually just interviewed uh, Pastor McPherson on the Daily Signal podcast and had a great conversation with him about his book, about what he means by that, that the third option, he talks about race relations in America and how so often, you know, we have this opinion of it's us versus them. And he says, no, there's, there's another option. And it looks like honor and it looks like unity. So really convicting, really powerful and definitely relevant for right now. Such a great question, Virginia. And make sure when you are tweeting, don't forget to use the hashtag problematic women so we can find your response. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify 
SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.